This is Matt Freitas, and you're listening to the Late Night History Podcast. My next guest is someone I profiled for a print story published in the summer 2022 limited edition of Coffee or Die magazine. The story inside the magazine is called The Great Adventure, Neil McCallum's 46 Years of Dedicated Service to Uncle Sam. Some inside baseball for you. In December 2021, I went to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii to cover the 80th anniversary of the attacks. I wrote a couple dispatches and met some interesting people, including former NFL linebacker Donnie Edwards, who played for the Kansas City Chiefs and, at the time, the San Diego Chargers. He now runs Best Defense Foundation, where he brings World War II veterans back to their battlefields. Donnie introduced me to Neil, which I was only privy to Neil's background as a U.S. Marine, having served during the Battle of Okinawa during World War II. But after speaking with Neil on numerous occasions, I later learned he had accomplished far more than I initially perceived. After World War II, Neil became one of the very first Sky Marshals in the 1970s in an effort to combat the growing problem of plane hijackings, so he helped enforce new anti-piracy laws. We also briefly touch on Neil's 20 years as a criminal investigator for the U.S. Customs. You can read about his big cases, which a link will be provided in the description as well as Neil's government work with the U.S. State Department in the 80s in Russia. So without further ado, here is episode 17 with Neil McKell. So, can you just start off by, um, like, where you're from and, like, or how do you get involved with the Marines? Oh, yeah, so that's, uh, yes, I get, I always get that uh, a lot. Uh, yes, uh, well, I, I was born in North Carolina Central, uh, North Carolina in the Piedmont area, uh, March 10th, 1927. And on my 17th birthday, plus 10, I volunteered to join the Marines. I had to get permission from my mother and our father. And so my father signed, and I I already had four brothers in the Army that were going to Europe. And, well, three in the Army and one in the Navy. And so I went to Paris Island, South Carolina, for two months of uh, intensive uh, boot tr- training. Uh, returned home uh, uh, for a 10-day leave. And uh, after that, I shipped out from uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, to San Diego by troop train, which I call cattle cars. And... Uh, we spent about a week in San Diego, and uh, on August uh, 1st, 1944, uh, we boarded uh, my, my, my two, but the second and third battalion of the 29th Marines uh, boarded uh, a, a troop ship for Gu- Guadalcanal, arriving there on the morning of 17 August. Uh, 
you want to go on from there? Yeah, uh, can you uh, describe your experience at Guadalcanal? Yes, I had uh, seven months of intensive uh, arduous training in Guadalcanal, and uh, it's the most hellish place I've ever been. Uh, a lot of tropical diseases, amoebic, dysentery, malaria. Uh, we took Adderin, which was a substitute for quinine, as the Japanese had already seized uh, quinine sources in, uh, in the Dutch East Indies and, and the Philippines. And so uh, we trained uh, very hard, and sometimes we would do 20-mile marches uh, on just one canteen of water. Wow. That that wouldn't be acceptable today. Uh, the idea today is to drink it as you need it and, and then go from there. But this was to condition us uh, to, you might say, uh, harden us up, you know, make us more durable. But actually, uh, with all the dehydrated food we were eating on Water Canal for seven months, uh, was really uh, slowly, uh, in just my opinion, uh, was weakening us. Uh, <laughs> you might say malnutrition, mal malnutrition, and uh, when we loaded our ships and departed uh, Guadalcanal for for Okinawa. We, we were on attack transports uh, ships, and there we got, actually got green salads, and uh, we got fresh food. And we were on that vessel for about two weeks, and we uh, really regained our strength back. And uh, I don't think anyone aboard uh, the vessel that I was on uh, wanted ever to go back to Guadalcanal, that combat would be, would be better. And what other uh, training did you, you were there for seven months and you did like uh, ruck marches, but did you practice like, like ambushes or attack, like assaults or what? Uh, yeah, yes, we did. Uh, the pillbox uh, in general was, was the main one. Whereas we would attack it by first uh, by mortar and machine gun. And then we would have a fire team to run up uh, alongside our field of fire. And uh, there would be a demo man, a demo man, and uh, a flamethrower. And then the machine gun fire and the mortar fire would cease, and then the, they would attack the pillbox before the occupants inside could could uh, get get back on uh, alert. At least that was the theory of it. And we also did some. Uh, we did some house-to-house -house training uh, on Guadalcanal. Uh, we had a village there made, fabricated by the Seabees, and uh, they even had a geisha house. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, we we got a lot of training with that, and actually that came in came in handy uh, during the during the occupation battle of Naha. So. Uh, I was in 60 millimeter mortars and 
we had a lot of uh, individual training with, with those and firing exercises and and uh, things of that nature. So was your job to like carry the mortar or were you like what was your job with the mortars? Well, uh, principally I was the gunner and that means uh, I carried the sight. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we all pitched in uh, every there were five men assigned to one gun and we had three guns. And so each one of us could do do any other job. Ammo carriers could be gunners and vice versa. So, so we were all well versed in, in that and in targeting and asthmas. And it was, it was, the training was similar to what artillery training is. And, um, uh, we didn't use degrees in those days. We used uh, meals, so many meals to the right, so many meals to the left, instead of degrees. And we had the aiming stakes just like they had in artillery. So that was uh, for a 17 year old, that was quite enlightening. Right. And then you, you go on the troop, or you go on like the vessel to bring you to Okinawa? Do I remember the name of the vessel? Yeah, do you remember? Yes, I do. It was the George Clymer. C-L-Y-M-E-R. I think he might have signed both documents. Uh, I know that he signed the uh, Constitution. And uh, I believe he signed uh, uh, or assented uh, uh, to uh, the Declaration of Independence. A, a patriot, in other words. And uh, it's George Clymer, APA 27. It held the 2nd Battalion, 29th Marines, and all our gear. And then um, how long did it take you to get, like, did you take that ship to Okinawa, or did you kind of, like, how how did you, uh, what was your involvement with the invasion? Yes, we took that all the way to Okinawa, and we had a, a stop, and... Uh, Ulithi, which is a big, safe naval anchorage uh, in the Caroline Islands. And there we had about four to five days of, uh, you might say, uh, indoctrination uh, about Okinawa. No, that's not correct. Uh, we, we still didn't know our destination. Uh, we... Uh, we were entertained uh, by uh, various uh, celebrities uh, come aboard and wish you goodwill. They knew we were going to combat, so they, they laid on a lot of uh, uh, st- uh, rec- uh, ce- ce- celebrities to, to talk to and, and uh, improve your morale. So I, I remember talking to uh, one of my heroes, by the way, was uh, not Jane Tunney, but, uh, oh, I'm having a senior moment here. Uh, he was a commander in the Navy. He was, uh, he was involved in the long count, if you uh, uh He fought Jane T- Tunney in the long count. Okay, and, I can look that up. Yeah, and he also has a restaurant in New York City at the time. He was a uh, lieutenant commander in the Navy. 
Uh, his name will come to, to me before we finish this. Uh, what was his uh, restaurant? Pardon me? What was the name of his restaurant? What was the name of the what? Of the restaurant? Oh, uh, it's his name. Oh, okay. <laughs> the same name. Uh, Gene, uh, Gene Tunney. He fought Gene Tunney in the, in the celebrated long count. And uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, Dennis Day came aboard uh, from... Uh, Jack Benny Show, uh, uh, individuals like that. Uh, we didn't have any women at that time to come aboard. They, they, we had seen some of them earlier on Guadalcanal. But uh, we had uh, one day, at least, we had on a little island called Mog Mog. Uh, you perhaps know about this island. And uh, we had uh, lots of... Uh, sandwiches to eat, cold cut sandwiches with cheese and salami and uh, all the hot beer we could drink and uh, which we all got drunk. We had uh, a re really a wild time playing so softball and it was very difficult to get back on the ship. Uh, we left the ship on cargo nets and uh, most of the guys uh, were so drunk they, they couldn't climb the nets. Uh, so they had to lower the VIP uh, ladder down and, and come up the ladder that way. But uh, that was just uh, kind of a release, uh, you know, of tensions and things. So we left there on the 27th of uh, March. And uh, we arrived uh at okinawa during the night uh early morning hours of uh, april 1st and during those uh five or six days that uh, we were in route uh we went over uh the island and its terrain features and and uh and the expected uh big fight that was to take place on the beach uh uh, in our sector, and that was about the extent of it. Uh, we were were assigned uh, to land uh, in the afternoon, not in the initial uh, wave. And so uh, about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, we started hearing boom, 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 below decks. And uh, these were the big battle wagons and the uh, heavy and light cruisers uh, and destroyers uh, were, they were just uh, pounding the island, you know, continuously. This went on until uh, daybreak and uh, the, the, the land, the landing force was, I think, took place at uh, about 7.30. And then uh, the, uh, the the naval and marine uh, aircraft came in to strafe the beachy areas and dropping uh, napalm, uh, all kinds of uh, armaments uh, on the beaches. And uh, the initial wave was already in the water and ready to go and... Uh, 
I think that took place about 7.35. There's some variances uh, in the landing. We landed uh, We landed two Marine divisions, the 1st and 6th Marine Division, uh, and the Army landed the 96th Division and the uh, 7th Division. And uh, they... Uh, all, all of them landed uh, without opposition. And once they got ashore, they drove inland fast, and the Army turned right and went to the south. And the 1st Marine Division went straight across the island and protected the Army rear. And my division went straight and captured uh, Yantan Airfield. Uh, we came ashore about... 10 o'clock in the morning instead of the afternoon. And so we spent, we spent the evening uh, right near Yantan Airfield on the first night. And uh, all of us were perplexed about not being opposed. So uh, all during this time, uh, the, the next day would, of course, would be second and third and fourth of, uh, of uh, April. And all during these days, the kamikazes came over in big swarms. They, they were called chrysanthemums, uh, floating, uh, floating uh, of, of, of waves of uh, planes. And they referred to them as chrysanthemums, the Japanese did. And they did a lot of havoc and damage and and uh, this kamikaze was a daily occurrence. It usually happened uh, uh, at dusk, and the sky was lit up, and uh, like uh, the Fourth of July, with a lot of this uh, flak and stuff that the Navy sent up, uh, landed down on us, but uh, but no one got hurt. So that's uh, about the initial first three days. And how big were these swarms of uh, kamikaze pilots? Like how many well, planes? Well, uh, I have since read that uh, any that they could be up to three hundred and fifty planes, and uh, but some of them are kamikaze, uh, not expected to return, and some uh, some were just regular Japanese uh, fighters. Uh, that had the ability and uh, the the gas to to return. So uh, yes, uh, in numbers like that, and you can imagine being on land and and observing this. That this would this would be a big spectacular. For sure. So uh, this 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 kept. Uh, this kept up all during the campaign, and I wasn't there on the last day of the campaign, but on the last day of the ca- campaign, there was a kamikaze attack when it, when the island was officially declared secure. So Japan had plenty of aircraft, uh, not in top-notch condition, so they were ready for, you know, Operation Downfall, uh, which, you know, you've read about the coronet, I think, was the first might have been the first uh, phase of that of invasion of Japan. Uh, they had plenty of aircraft uh, for that, kamikaze. And then after, uh, or like after the initial invasion, um, 
were you involved in some like battles? Uh, yes, uh, we overran over the Sixth Marine Division, of which uh, my regiment was in. I was in the Twenty Ninth Marine Regiment. Uh, we went south. Uh, I'm sorry, we went north, and uh, where there was. Uh, about the equivalent of a regiment of Japanese, uh, mostly in the mountains uh, in the far, far north of Okinawa. Uh, but they had uh, guerrilla fighting forces uh, dispersed all around in the terrain. And we overran the, those positions uh, and and somehow we, we wound up having quite a few of these guerrillas uh, on our rear. Um, these weren't big problems, but uh, they were pr- problems nevertheless, and had to be dealt with. And uh, so that was that was a nuisance going forward. The real battle came at Mount Yataki, which uh, there's two mountains uh, si- side by side there, and uh, uh, you know, mountain warfare is difficult and. Involves a lot of muscular strength and uh, exhaustion, getting food and fuel and uh, munitions, you know, up up the mountain. And uh, we had some friendly fire there from our own aircraft, but uh, you won't find any mention of it and uh, uh, books. But we lost. I know that when. Uh, 29th Marines, so we lost uh, four Marines uh, in a friendly fire there. And they, the the plane, it was an F4U, and it mistook us. Uh, and so he came back for another run, and uh, we were we were going to fire, fire it with our BARs and machine guns, you know, and uh, uh, but uh, he wagged uh, his wings, you know, uh, in, in uh, recognition that he had made a mistake. So I, we were quite bitter about that. Did he, like, but, was it with bombs or was it with his, like... Uh, ro- rocket fire. We had rocket fire by then, you know, on the wings. Right. Yeah, rocket fire. And who were the guerrillas that you had uh, that were in the rear? Uh, well, they were Japanese soldiers. Uh, uh, under a colonel named uh, Udo, U-D-O. Uh, he was, he had a as I said earlier, he had a regiment of Japanese to defend the entire northern end. Uh, as you know, all the the Japanese army was to the south. And, uh, but, uh, but in the North, the Japanese had a lot of resources, even had, uh, uh, some cavalry troops. Uh, they, they had beautiful horses and, and veterinary services and so forth. Um, uh, you need animals, uh, anyway, in the mountains. And that's what they were using them for. But we captured those and even rode those uh, horses and uh, had a lot of fun with them and uh, things of that nature. Did you use the horses like during battle or is it just kind of in between time? 
Oh, in between times, we didn't we didn't use them uh, in any military wise. Uh, which well, I can give you an incident there where our, uh, our we called them field musics. Uh, you know, uh, a, a, a bugle, bugle, bugle marines. You know that they that you know. Especially in training, you know, we we did everything by bugle. You know, there was a bugle for wake up and go to bed and all that kind of thing. And uh, they, uh, when we'd get a prisoner, we'd usually have the field music man to uh, take the prisoner back to the rear, and uh, so that he would put his pack on the prisoner and he would ride the horse. And we had been we had been taught. Uh, some Japanese on Guadalcanal by by, uh, by Okinawan people who were at who came from Hawaii. They had migrated to Hawaii, and then we had some Japanese interpreters uh, from the University of Colorado. They taught us uh, terms like "come out with your hands up" and uh, uh, "we'll give you water and tobacco" and "forward mat- march" and and uh, a, a few things like that. Uh, the the biggest one we used on Okinawa was uh, coin. It, it means come out. And I since asked, uh, uh, I met in Philadelphia uh, a Japanese uh, uh, a delegation there. Uh, I asked them what that, what that meant and uh, they said it means come here. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> That's, I don't know how many Japanese were impressed with that, but uh, <laughs> anyway, we use that method. And um, I I understand. We was there another like battle, like a, I think it was like with Sugarloaf Hill. Ah uh, yes, that well that that comes uh, later. Uh, after we secured Mount Yataki and the uh, uh, submarine pens. Uh, uh, up to the north, uh, our, our job was over, and we we thought the the battle was over for us. Now, initially, uh, General Buckner of the Tenth Army, uh, who was over all commander, had uh, tried to take the south of Okinawa with two army divisions, the ninety sixth and the seventh, uh, as I said earlier, and that's where all the big prizes were, and that's where all the Japanese were and uh, all their emplacements and caves. And and one principal uh, uh, defensive line and uh, several uh, temporary ones in front, in front of the main uh, line of resistance. And so uh, he couldn't take it with two divisions. So instead of using the second marine division which he had praised very heavily uh, prior to the battle um, and they they were on floating reserve uh, he landed the 27th uh, new york national guard division uh, so that's three three divisions uh, uh, trying try, trying to take the south and uh, he couldn't do it about this time but now we're into may and about this time, uh, uh, Admiral Nimitz, uh, who was the overall commander of everything for Okinawa, 
premature, and and uh, he had told uh, General Buckner that uh, he was losing a capital ship a day, and that this was very costly, and uh, uh, it, they, these ships had to stay there and protect us and provide us with munitions and fuel, and that at this rate, he's... General Buckner was not moving out. He was not, you know, he wanted to sit back and just artillery them instead of like uh, really going going at them. And he told him, uh, he says, if you can't do the job, he says, I'll get somebody who will. Uh, he originally appointed Buckner to be the commander of the 10th Army as a as kind of a token uh, to the army because there had been some dispute between the Marines and the army in Saipan where a Marine general fired another army general. And uh, that created a big mess for the brass in Washington. Of course, the Navy stood up for the Marines and uh, the army stood up for its its general. So that's, that's how Buckner became appointed. Uh, a commander of the 10th Army, and uh, he thought that he could beat beat the Japanese just by with uh, just by artillery and uh, and our, our resources. But uh, that didn't work, and uh, so uh, the the 27th Army Division was extracted, and the first Marine Division that had been protecting the rear of the army. And moved up on lines. And then he decided that he needed another Marine Division, namely the one I was in, the 6th Marine Division, to move up on, on line two and take take the uh, uh, side uh, facing the, the, uh, the East China Sea. So now we've got uh, four divisions uh, instead of two divisions and instead of three divisions, now it's escalated to four and it's getting serious and the casualty rates are moving up. And for us in the 6th Marine Division, um, well, we are, before we landed on Okinawa, we were going through this thing, so-called thing called fear factor, you know. We were worried about living and who's going to die and that kind of thing. And you get over that after a few days. And so we had to go through this all over again when we went down to help the army out. And uh, so so we did, and uh, the going was tough, but we did move, and that's what uh, Admiral Nimitz ordered. And and the army began to move. And uh, two of these, uh, as a matter of fact, three of these army divisions were cracked, well-trained troops, and they did an excellent job. They were just poorly officered, uh, in my opinion. The, their leaders were, were not the best, especially with the 27th Division. So anyway, uh, we pressed forward, and I think you mentioned Sugarloaf Hill. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's best thought of, that not as Sugarloaf Hill, but as the Sugarloaf Complex or Sugarloaf Triangle. There were three terrain features. Sugarloaf was one, and Half Moon or Crescent was the other. And uh, 
and beyond Sugarloaf, but by maybe 200 yards, was the uh, Horseshoe uh, Ridge. And if you attacked one of these land features, the other two would attack you. And so that's where the trouble came in, and it was a killing ground. But it was also the the 32nd Army, Japanese uh, Imperial Army, it was also their... Uh, their, their anchor uh, uh, for the Japanese line. It, had we gone beyond that, taken that, uh, we would turn his flank and cause him to retreat or, or the battle would be fought then and there and be over with it in, in hours or days. But as it turned out, uh, we don't know how many times we took it, maybe 10 or 11 times. So finally, on the uh, on the 18th of uh, May, uh, my battalion took uh, took Sugarloaf Hill itself, and uh, and we had been my battalion, uh, uh, Fox Company, had been uh, had been in uh, in, ba- in battle for four continuous days. And the 29th Marines had been in constant battle for about six days. And so uh, we were all shot up. Uh, we, we only had, out of out of the, our regiment, we probably had one battalion of effective troops left. And so uh, the division commander had one last card to play uh, to move the line. And he brought up the 4th Marine Regiment which was composed of the old Raider battalions and Japanese veterans of Guadalcanal uh, had gone to the States and come back. And uh, anyway, they were a tough bunch. Well, I thought we were all pretty tough, but they were, they were really good. And uh, they came up and, and so we flanked, they flanked, uh, the Japanese 32nd Army and uh, the the Japanese commander had to order a retreat, and so that was the beginning of the end. And uh, what were the cost to us? What were like the defenses that you were like? Were there any pillboxes there? Uh, well, uh, you, well, we built that hillboxes on Guadalcanal, but these were a little bit different. These were land features, caves, and and a lot of work had gone in inside the caves to, to like for Sugarloaf Hill, which isn't a very large hill at all, but it in its bowels, uh, it probably could hold a hundred Japanese troops down below and just feed them up uh, as, as needed, uh, uh, once they start losing troops. And that's what made it so difficult. This would be the same thing at Horseshoe Ridge and also at uh, the Crescent, also known as Half Moon. And so uh, the, the the problem was that we were killing Japanese, but they kept they were able to keep their reinforcements up. And so uh, I, my regiment was relieved by the fourth marines uh on the 19th and uh just as 
just a few steps out of my foxhole, uh, I was uh, hit by a fragment from uh, a 150 millimeter artillery shell. And a lot of us were, and a lot of the 4th Marines who were coming up were, were also hit before they got online. And so it was, it was a big event. Uh, there were a lot of troops going and a lot of troops uh, coming. And the Japanese could see that with their big eye binoculars. And uh, so they knew every piece of terrain on that island, you know, with those guns. And uh, they were very effective. And uh, the 4th Marines lost a lot of men just making the relief. And where were you hit uh, with the shrapnel? Uh, yes, it was shrapnel. I was hit through and through on the right calf. And uh, there were stretchers. Uh, and uh, the corpsman was from the 4th Marines that patched me up. And he only patched up one side. <laughs> the side where it came out, which is a big hole. And uh, he put a big patch on that and gave me a serrette in, um, in the shoulder area, in the neck area somewhere. And uh, I, I was in no pain. He ran everybody off. I had my buddies were trying to stay there and help me, you know, and, uh, uh, and but he ran them off and uh, um, so I was sent to, back to battalion aid station and they immediately sent me to the army uh, hospital, which was nothing but a, a big pit with a canvas over it. And uh, the doctor whose name I still know is Dr. Foch or Foch, F-O-C-H. Uh, he told me that, uh, he said, you're going to be okay. I've just, uh, first of all, this was the first, we had penicillin then. I got a big shot in the butt of penicillin. The needle was about, about a foot long. Oh, my. <laughs> and, uh, so he, he got the Carl sand uh, out of the wound he irrigated it and said that the nerves would fuse back together and that i would always have some numbness there but he said otherwise i think you're going to be 100 percent and uh uh i i stayed about three days longer on okinawa and then i was placed aboard a a c-54 uh, transport plane, Army Air Corps, and uh, flew to Guam. That was a brand new plane. And I was flown to Guam and I, at Fleet Hospital 111 there. And there I saw about half my company. They were already there. Were they also uh, wounded from the artillery shell? Uh, from various, from uh, artillery, gun, uh, you know, rifle shots, uh, that kind of thing, you know. And was the artillery shell that uh, hit you, did that, what were like the casualties from that? What would, what be? Uh, the casualties, like how many other people were affected by it? Oh, I, I, I many, we I, see, I would have no time to make account of that. Uh, I can just tell you that several 
several were hit. Uh, the, the ones from the 4th Marines who were coming up to replace us and and the, and the, and the ones in the 29th who were being relieved, like me. But I, I would say that that day, maybe the Japanese might have wounded or killed uh, maybe 200. That, that's a wild guess that, that I'm giving you. Uh, I have since uh, read about the battle and that kind of thing. And I've been to a lot of reunions where we discuss things. and uh, But we lost big numbers. And, and the uh, history books, uh, uh, they, they proclaim that also. And uh, did you say it was a 105 shell or 150 yeah, shell? Yeah, 155. Uh, I didn't know that was a 155. I, I, I'm sorry, a 150, 150 millimeters. Uh, the Japanese took these guns off of uh, uh, Navy ships and they put them into, uh, like in the Shuri Castle Cliffs, uh, which was only, by the way, a one and two-tenths miles from where I was. <coughs> and... Uh, so that's not far. And by by the way, where we were was the Japanese artillery uh, practice range. And, and I found out about that afterwards, of course. But uh, these guns uh, were on railroad tracks inside a cave. And they could roll them out on the track and they fire like four or five rounds and then quickly put go back in and camouflage it and uh, we our artillery couldn't get uh, an azimuth on them you know for counterfire so they were able to get away with this uh, this type of uh, artillery but you have to remember uh, the mission of the 32nd imperial army was to was to maim or kill as many us as possible uh, to give japan time to get ready for the initial uh, invasion and also to uh, for our congressmen and and our 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 mothers and fathers complained to Congress to get uh, Truman. By this time, it was Truman to get Truman to uh, to agree to a, a, a surrender without occupation of Japan. That was the whole purpose of the Thirty Second Army. They they were not there to win the battle. Uh, they were they were there to sacrifice, and every Japanese soldier knew that. And so that's why they were so desperate, and uh, and I think very careless with their lives. Uh, they were not afraid to die. And how long were you on uh, Okinawa for? Uh, well, I was forty nine days there, effective, and uh, about three more days. Uh, uh, as uh, in the hospital, if you will. And what was like, did you have in those days like any uh, re rehabilitation from your uh, injury? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, well, I went back to uh, to Fleet Hospital one, well, back. I hadn't been there before. I was flown to, you know, to Guam and there they attended to me and uh, they, I guess, they decide uh, whether you're 
stay there and go back to your unit or, or serious enough to go to the U.S. Uh, fortunately for me, I didn't want to go back. I can't think of anyone who did, really. Uh, maybe later I might have wanted to. But uh, uh, I was put on a ship uh, that was improvised as a hospital ship. It, it wasn't a, a hospital ship like the Comfort or the Mercy or the, uh, the Hope. It was uh, it was actually an attack transport ship that had been converted with stretchers and special uh, arrangements for uh, wounded people and and for doctors and corpsmen. And so uh, I was put. Uh, I don't know the name of the ship, but we made a stop in Pearl Harbor and uh, a brief stop and offloaded some serious uh, uh, patients. And then we went on to San Francisco, and we were given uh, uniforms then, you know, clothes to wear, <laughs> and uh, uh, put, then I was put on a, a hospital train, and we took the northern route uh, uh, to, to a, a U.S. Naval Hospital, Portsmouth. I say the northern route, that means going through Chicago. And when we came over from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, on the cattle cars, uh, we took the southern route. So I got to see quite a bit of, uh, of our country. Uh, and I marveled at what a beautiful country we had. This was all uh, eye-opening for, uh, for a young Tar Heel from uh, the Piedmont area of North Carolina. Just just uh, west of the Research Triangle here. That would be Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill. And uh, so I, I convalesced at U.S. Naval Hospital, Portsmouth, Virginia. And after I was there a couple of weeks, I was able to walk, and the doctors uh, said, well, you can go home for 30-day convalescent leave, which I did, and... Uh, uh, as I, as I said earlier, you know, the doctor had told me that, uh, you're going to be okay. And, and I was, I, I don't think I was handicapped in any way. And eventually I was returned to duty, but the war was over and I was going to be reassigned to my, uh, old division, which was then stationed on Guam getting ready one regiment getting one regiment went to uh, went to Japan, and uh, t two regiments went to Tsingtao, uh, China, uh, to repatriate the uh, Japanese uh, Kwantung Army, and to send them back to uh, to Japan on uh, on these uh, L LCIs. It would be a, a short journey anyway from China to Japan. And that was their duty. I, none of this uh, I was not witness to or part of. And uh, what was your rank going into the Marine? Or like when you started out and did you like keep the same rank or? Well, I started out as a... a private PFC, and uh, when I was discharged uh, from the Marine Corps, I was a corporal, the exalted rank of a corporal. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
And um, what did you, so you were, um, did you get reassigned or how do you, what was your next uh, stop in your military career? Well, I could have uh, been discharged, uh, uh, let's see, by April of 1946. I could have been discharged, but I, they offered me a deal that I couldn't turn down. Uh, that's when I got promoted to corporal, as a matter of fact. So that was an inducement to stay. And they said, you can go to uh, to Europe on a good well, good goodwill cruise aboard the, uh, a light cruiser, uh, Wilkes-Barre. It's a war bonds cruiser. Uh, from Wilkes-Barre, you know, sponsored by Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, war bonds, paid for by war bonds from Wilkes-Barre. And so that sounded exciting, and uh, I did. And uh, we we went to Guantanamo Bay, and we practiced gunnery, and and, uh, um, and all the islands off of Puerto Rico, and, and we came back to Norfolk uh, to refit, and then in February of 1947, we set sail for England. And uh, that was one of the coldest uh, winters on record. But that was a beautiful trip. Uh, I saw all the devastation in England from and London, you know, from being bombarded. We stopped at several ports, and uh, we went to Scotland, and then... then uh, we went to Le Havre in France, and we got, we got three days, uh, three days in uh, Paris, and the other half of the ship got three days. That was an eye opener for uh, for a young Tar Heel guy. And uh, 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 the, while we were on that uh, cruise in April, the King of uh, Denmark. Uh, King Christian the Tenth. Uh, he died from gangrene. He was a, uh, I don't know whether he was six foot six or six foot seven, a huge man. And uh, anyway, we we were assigned to two destroyers. They were afraid of floating mines in the North Sea, so we we went by destroyers uh, to uh, Copenhagen to march in his funeral, and that was very exciting too. And they were they were very nice to us in Denmark, and and, and it was mutual. And uh, so that was a good experience for me, and uh, it's very vivid. And and the the parade was on April thirtieth, the funeral parade, in March, and uh, nineteen forty seven. There's some documentation of that. Uh, uh, online but it's it's very feeble uh, and so after then we we came back we came back to the US and we did a little bit of New England uh, uh, ports and the ship was uh, was uh, decommissioned and is now resting somewhere in the Keys uh, made a fishing relief so that was that was a magnificent trip uh, unforgettable and and 
and it opened up the world for me to travel. And uh, since then, I've traveled to a lot of places, at, mostly at government expense, uh, um, and doing various jobs with the government. Uh, I went to college uh, after the war, uh, to College of Great Falls, and uh, Great Falls, Montana. Two years, it was a teaching college, and then, then I graduated graduated much later at the University of Maryland and uh, I had uh, I was one of the original sky marshals uh, in the 71 72 73 when President Nixon had, had ordered that planes so we, we came up with the air air piracy laws international and so I did that for three years and then I went back to US Customs I was a criminal investigator with Customs, and uh, I did a career with Customs, and uh, by then I took some time off. I did a lot of uh, sailing. I've got five Atlantic crossings in my sailboat. I've had three of the sailboats. And let's see, I worked in Moscow doing Perestroika and Glasnost with a, a U.S. State Department, and that uh, this entailed going to uh, Helsinki uh, about every four months, back and forth. We didn't fraternize uh, with the Russians even then. The only fraternization uh, would be with uh, countries that belong to NATO. We could go to their embassies to eat and on certain evenings and things of that nature, and. Uh, so after then, uh, I retired, and and I still traveled. I continued sailing until the year 2000. That's when I saw my last boat. And uh, and I still traveled then by air a lot. And uh, then I concentrated going to the, to the Far East. I did a lot of traveling there. And uh, Singapore is one of my favorite cities in the world. And uh, I, uh, I went to Vietnam several times. Just this, I, I didn't follow the war so much uh, in Vietnam, so I wanted to see for myself. But I found it a fascinating country. Uh, really, three different countries, uh, climate and geography. Uh, uh, geographical features. What years so, were you at uh, the, as a U.S. Customs uh, investigator? And where? When you were with uh, Customs as an investigator, what years were you there? Oh, I, uh, oh, oh! This would be in Tampa. My home. This was my home office. Was in Tampa. Uh, I was in an anti-smuggling group. You know, uh, we had a lot of smuggling and a lot of. A lot of, uh, we call it dope, coming into Florida, you know, contraband. And uh, in the early days, it was uh, marijuana and cocaine. And uh, and lots of money laundering we worked on, uh, cases of that nature. And taking down actual loads of marijuana coming in on shrimp, shrimp boats and... Uh, we actually had a little Air Force. Uh, we had a retired uh, uh, Air Force pilots. We had Cessna citations, and 
we had lots of uh, small planes that we used, uh, you know, to uh, look for smuggle boats that we most likely had put some kind of listening device or motion device on. And uh, so that that was very interesting career to me. I didn't think it wasn't dangerous in my opinion. And, and just, we didn't do any street, what I call street uh, police work or anything like that. How long, but, how long were you there? Well, you know, where, where are we now? Uh, like with customs, how many years did you I do? Got, uh, 20 years with customs. I did a career with customs. And I, I counted all my other the military and uh, other activity to my retirement. I have a total of uh, 46 years. That includes, believe it or not, I only used three days of sick leave. Wow. I had a of uh, sick time, but uh, but I enjoyed the work. It was uh, it was interesting, and I I believed in. Uh, I was not so much an office man. I would be like an operations man, and uh, I enjoyed being out in the field. And you went? Were you with the State Department in Russia? Well, yes, I was, but I was like a you know a, a contract. Uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, employee. Yeah, I, I worked for the U.S. State Department, and I came under their security arrangements. I worked at, and and short, I worked with communication uh, security. Okay, and how long? Uh, how many years did you uh, were you involved in that work? Uh, uh, five years, uh, and uh, I, uh, that was in uh, Moscow and Helsinki, and one year in uh, in Santiago de Chile. What were the years? Were the like the was that like the nineteen seventies? Oh, those. Well, I would be in, actually. You a lot of people don't know this. The uh, most of the sky marshals were U.S. Customs employees, and uh, the uh, we had uh, uh, U.S. Marshals, but they worked on the ground at air airports, and see, we we actually flew planes. I flew with Delta Airlines uh, on seven forty sevens on uh, t- targets, uh, uh, targeted uh, flights. In those days, they were. They, they were not. We had a few planes that were going to the desert, uh, TWA flights that were hijacked uh, and taken to the desert. But uh, I worked with Delta and I didn't go overseas on, on any of those. Uh, but the flights were going to, uh, hi, being hijacked, were going to Havana. Okay. I don't, I don't know how old you are or if you remember that. Uh, no, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm only. I'm in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so no, these uh, these flights, the early hijacking flights, were all to Havana. We had a few that uh, uh, that was two and um, two together. That was t- TWA flights. Uh, Howard Hughes uh, still owned uh, TWA Airlines, and they were hijacked uh, in the desert. And now here we are in '71. 
and the president uh, is Nixon, and he wanted to arm, get anybody, if you get them off the street if necessary, that knows anything about a weapon and so forth. And he was also instrumental in getting uh, an international uh, agreement on air piracy. So, you you know, you have to have the authority to be, you know, there's going to be difficulties going from one country to another with the police in, in the air, you know, incidents that take place in the air. And so they come up with the Anti-Piracy Act. And we we had a profile for a uh, hijacker then. It didn't include a woman at that time. And uh, this uh, program went on for three years. And uh, a long story short, uh, the... Uh, the Federal, Federal Aviation Authority refused to fund it anymore. And the airlines said, we're, we're not going to fund it. And so it was done away with. And the, uh, and the profile was done away with. Now, just go forward a little bit to, to uh, 9-11, 2001. These all these guys fit the profile. One way ticket, uh, male, uh, between the ages of seventeen and fifty-one or fifty-two. I'm not quite sure anymore. And uh, let's see, uh, one way ticket and paid cash for your ticket. And so there would have never been nine eleven had the profile been been uh, used. But Americans uh, somehow don't like profiles because they think of them in terms of race. Uh, But there's nothing racist about the profile we had. Right. And when you were in Russia, uh, was that in the 1980s? Uh, 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 1987, 88, 89, and a little bit of 90. Just uh, Yeltsin... Yeltsin was coming to the fore. Yeltsin was the mayor of Moscow. And he's the one that stood on the tanks. And there's a picture of him. It's easily brought up on the computer. There's a picture of him standing on a tank and directing fire into the Russian White House. The Russian White House is right down from the U.S. Embassy, the new U.S. Embassy. And uh, it's a beautiful building. It just—it's a marvel, a marvel. Just a beautiful a building. And so, and at this time, uh, Gorbachev went on vacation uh, uh, in this in the south of the Ukraine. And while he was there, he was kidnapped because you see, he was taking taking Russia away from. Uh, uh, from from uh, communism, and he came up with his perestroika uh, glasno plan, and uh, so he was kidnapped temporarily. So Yeltsin, the mayor of, uh, of Moscow, took over the government. Uh, personal took it over. Uh, anyway, uh, Gorbachev got free of the, of the hijackers, and uh, and that's actually how Gorbachev, uh, how Yeltsin became became the leader of the country, head of the country. And as you know, Yeltsin, uh, when he came to the States, uh, when he was mayor of Moscow, he said, 
poverty in London is is first class in Russia. <laughs> Make comments like that, and you see pictures of him like swinging with the. Uh, uh, jitterbugging and and dancing with uh, Russian girls and these uh these uh groups a uh, little little jazz groups that that crop up here and there in Russia at the time and in other words they were being uh, inundated with American uh, style of music so he was a very colorful person drank heavily but uh, he unfortunately appointed Putin to be head of the government and uh, and Putin had to sign several letters indemnifying Yeltsin and his family and uncles and cousins from corruption. In other words, he couldn't be tried. <laughs> Yeltsin had, like all Russians, uh, uh, you know, they they take money from the government. Right. During this time of, uh, now of, uh, we'll, we'll call it perestroika, there was a lot of crime beginning to creep into Russia. Under the communists, there was, there was communist crime, uh, but, but the people themselves didn't do crime because they'd be afraid of being shot. But uh, we called them the, you know how we use the word mafia? Mafia. Yep. Uh, we call them mafia. Uh, uh, ya in Russian means me. Ya. Yana's not you. I mean, I don't know. Ya. Mafia. Uh, they're just something that in the in, uh, in the American uh, embassy community uh, community there was over like three hundred people in that in our embassy, and so you know. People are going to coin things and come up with it. And, uh, and for example, uh, some of the crime would be uh, would, would be they would sell trainloads of uh, meat from the Ukraine, and it would be destined to go to uh, to Siberia. Say it would never get there; it'd be sold and uh, stolen and sold three or four times, and. It, and during that time uh, when I was there, when they found a train load of meat, they just rotted uh, right on the outskirts of Moscow. So there's a lot of crime like that. And uh, they, uh, it seems like all the bakeries broke down at once in Russia, and the whole of Russia. And this was, this was a big catastrophe and uh, catastrophic. And, uh, you know, black bread... The Russians, if they got black bread and cabbage, uh, most likely they won't. There won't be a revolution. So th- these incidental things, there are people standing in lines, and I would ask them, "Why are you in this long line? It's about a mile long." They say, "We heard some ships, uh, some shoes were being shipped in, and Gorbachev took them off vodka. You couldn't. The only place you could get v- vodka was in." a hotel frequented by tours uh, and uh, it was interesting times uh, I think uh, transitioning to Putin and from there I think everything went downhill to right as we talk right now 
And was uh some was the mafia were they uh, involved with like um like caviar and like th- that type of crime? I don't know that specifically, but I was. Uh, every time I went to uh, Finland, well, first of all, I used to go to the, I used to go to the uh, uh, hotel, Ukrainian hotel. It's it's now it's across the the Moscow River from the embassy. It's a short walk, and uh, I used to go in there. And, uh, oh, this was an elegant hotel, and it still is. It's known as the Radisson today. <laughs> and uh, I would go in into the dining area, and they would have orchestras playing every evening, you know, and you would be dining at tables, and anyone could sit at your table. The table was not reserved for you at all. And, uh, but anyway, I, the maitre d', when I would go in, I'd shake hands with him, and it would be a $5 bill. And uh, so he gave my party, he gave my party, I gave the bill to me, and uh, I threw out a bunch of rubles. I had I had rubles. Uh, they were worthless. I would just give him rubles. But that $5 bill got me a table that I wanted in front of the orchestra. And uh, But I also used him to get me little tins of... Uh, caviar black caviar and I, I must tell you up front the russians don't know how to eat uh, uh, a, a caviar you know they just uh, eat it on uh, on their rye bread and that, that's it black bread but uh the fins uh they they put they make it creamy and and uh, put it on crisp crisp bread it's uh, really different but uh, but I took when I'd go to Finland, I would take uh, caviar, and believe it or not, the Finns wanted black bread, which was cheap. <laughs> and when I would go, uh, I didn't. I flew Air Flot one time, uh, Air Flot, but uh, I would go by train, and I was not allowed to. Uh, have, it was like a fourteen-hour trip by train, and I was not allowed to have any uh, Russians. Uh, in my compartment, uh, each compartment would sleep. I believe, I believe, uh, two or I, I think six. And, uh, but uh, I had to pay for the whole compartment. But I paid for it with rubles, which probably cost me twenty bucks. <laughs> something, something ridiculous. And so when I would go, I would have I'd carry my own food. I would carry some Bordeaux wine that I got from the uh, yeah, from our embassy uh, a commissary, and I'd have oh I'd have a good spread. And those Russians used to walk by my compartment and look at they're going to Finland, and uh, they would you know look envious at me uh, eating eating and dining like a king. <laughs> That was interesting, and uh, when they got to the what is the uh, the, the Finnish border, it really, re- really this part of Russia belonged to Finland all along. You probably know where Viberg is, uh, do you not? Uh, no. They took that away from and the War of Continuation in World War Two. They took that away from Finland. You know, Finland. 
beat the Russians uh, two or three times in the early part of the war, but eventually the numbers in, in, in Moscow over, overran the Finnish forces. They took about two-thirds of them and still have it today. But the Finns said, that's okay. Uh, the Finns are, even today, are only five million people, and it's a big country. And so uh, the, 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 the largest embassy in the world excluding this thing we have in uh iraq is the is the uh, russian embassy uh in helsinki and that's their window to the world that's where all their spies and so forth go and habitate and they go on missions from there it's really impressive and as i said before there's only well back then there was only three million now there's five million people in finland in your job in the State Department was like communications? Protection of communications. Okay. Can you like elaborate on that at all? Uh, uh, pardon me? Can you elaborate on that at all or no? Uh, n- uh, not very much. Uh, uh, oh, I, something I can elaborate on uh, that we, <laughs> we did in Moscow. In Moscow, now we're talking about a new embassy and an old embassy in Moscow. And in Washington, D.C., the uh, uh, Russians wanted a, a new embassy. And we said, okay, we get one, you get one. And so in D.C., you know, the National Cathedral is on the second highest elevation in D.C. And the, ne- and the highest is where the Russian embassy is today. They built their own embassy. We let the Russians, we had an American architect and a Russian architect, and they built our embassy, and they loaded it with uh, with over 600 microphones uh, with with the new powered uh, batteries, probably lithium, lithium batteries even at that time. And uh, they could turn these uh, microphones on and off any time they wanted to. And that way, you, if they turned off, there's no way you're going to pick it up, you know, m- measure the waves, you know, uh, the frequencies. And so uh, so we still had, we found the embassy was bugged. This is b- before me. And... and uh, and, and and so we we refused to move into the new embassy, and we wouldn't let them move in their new embassy in Washington. And so we still that meant we used the old embassy. In the old embassy, we still had tunneling. And what I said I was going to tell you about it was no big deal. Uh, we I was with a group of people. We mo- we monitored the tunnels, and. Uh, uh, you know, and these these tunnels were as old as World War Two, and uh, where they, you know, in those days uh, they could come in and tap your lines and that kind of thing. With with the new embassy, they don't worry that the technology is altogether different. So, so we we did that too. Uh, that was like a secondary job. Uh, we had. Uh, but it, it, I, I found that I was on vacation the way I looked at it. 
and and I got time off and I would discover Moscow. I remember going to Novodevichy, which is a, a most beautiful uh, monastery in, in, in Moscow. And when I was there, I saw all these atheists buried there. Um, Nikita Khrushchev and his wife uh, there. And uh, he's the one that said, uh, we will bury you. And I had my picture taken there uh, pointing to him in his stone. And uh, I said, I wrote a caption on the picture, we buried you. (laughs) (laughs) So that to me, this is, you get paid for this. (laughs) So that's what I liked about it. And, uh, uh, you know, the state department, uh, they got a lot of money. A lot. It seemed like every congressman and their wives would like to go on these jumps, and they wanted to go to the new embassy and and be briefed on on what's going on. And uh, also at this time, just prior to this time, just about the time I came there, in the in the Marine Guards there, there was a sergeant. His name was Sergeant Long tree l-o-n-e-t-r-w-e and and uh, a black american marine who were dating uh russian girls and one of the girls said my uncle sasha would like to come into the embassy sometime at night when you're in the old embassy and come in and look at the cryptographic machines and I guess they were so in love with these women that uh, they let them come into the embassy and uh, they photographed the uh, cryptographic machines in the old embassy. So you know, well that 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 was found out about you know and when two people know something, something's going to be said. It's no longer a secret. And so this got out, and this was big news in the U.S. You you if you look up Sergeant Lone Tree, you will get that story. And uh, so all this was happening, and uh, uh, we were paranoid with one another, I would say. And that's one of the reasons I had to go to Helsinki, which I loved Helsinki. I love the fans. They drink too much, but they're wonderful people, smart as a whip. And uh, they know many things, how to do many things uh, in, in Nordic climes that we don't know how, you know. Yeah, and uh, they're, just, they're just smart people and, and are today. And so I found them interesting people and they're the most traveled people in the world because there's no place to go up from Finland. You have to, you have to go down. And uh, so that's about it. Uh, I just have one, like one more question just because I'm curious and I... I haven't been to Vietnam or uh, Singapore, but what was the best food you had when you were there? What was the best food? Yep. <sighs> well, let me see. I don't. I'm still eating that food. Uh, my wife uh, passed away. You know, I had known this guy for 51 years, and I uh, his wife. He married a his second wife was a Vietnamese lady from there and uh right now she takes care of me i'm 95 now and uh we're good friends very very good and close friends 
<laughs> and so I've been to Vietnam eight times. I first went with her and her husband. And you're asking me, I eat so much, so much Vietnamese food that I, I don't know. I'm going to have to say, I, I think they call it pho, 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 Yep. Okay. Oh, do you know it? Yeah, pho or pho, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, pho, 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 yeah. And uh, I, by the way, I don't speak any Vietnamese <laughs> outside of thank you and things like that. But uh, they're wonderful people. No one, uh, no one that said it, said anything to me about the war or anything, or there was no, uh, no hatred or, or anything like that at all. And it's three different climates and terrain features and three different cultures. And uh, they've come up a, a lot. They've come a long way. And a, a big U.S. trading partner. And uh, this this might sound foolish, but China is kind of afraid of Vietnam. You know, after the Viet, uh, the American and, and, and Vietnam War, uh, China tried to move in on uh, Vietnam, and uh, Vietnam repelled them. So, in other words, Vietnam could be a big problem for them, like Ukraine is a big problem for Russia now. It's fascinating. Well, I don't want to uh, take up too much of your time. I appreciate you um, taking your time out of your day to uh, speak with me. And if I have any more questions, can I give you a call? Yes, yes, you can. Uh, what I've given you is off, you know, uh, off the top of my head. Uh I've been through a few interviews before, but I I would say that <laughs> at least ninety five percent what I tell you I think is very very accurate and can be verified by just by looking reading and books you know. Yep.